Welcome to Composer Conversations. I'm your host, David Casina. For this episode, I'll be talking to Amin Batia, an award-winning composer of electronic music, TV, film, documentaries, and games. During our conversation, Amin discusses his beginnings with synthesizers, his incredible Interstellar Suite album, and composing music for film and TV projects including Iron Eagle 2, Kung Fu The Legend Continues, Once a Thief, Flashpoint, and with an E, and much, much more. thing that I always like to ask composers whenever I talk to them is what got them into music? It's it's funny. I mean, sitting here and having a nice chat with you and knowing that other people are listening, I guess I'm looking for things clever to say. I'm looking for some different way that someone got into music. But the simple reality is like so many other people, it was a combination of Planet of the Apes and Star Wars. Actually, technically escaped from the Planet of the Apes. I was 10 years old and my parents were out uh, and I got to babysit my, my sister's and I wasn't supposed to watch Escape from the Planet of the Apes, but I did because they weren't home. So to heck with it. And that's the first time I heard Jerry Goldsmith's score. As you may know, the opening titles to Escape from the Planet of the Apes, they're this, this beautiful rock-like approach, but uh, the time signature is so irregular and beautifully irregular, uh, along with those chords, which I had heard as Stravinsky chords. You know, mm-hmm. I'm hearing Stravinsky stuff in there. So I'm hearing this cool Stravinsky stuff to a beat with xylophones and piano. And I'm like, what is this? And I was, I was just hooked. For me, I mean, you know, there's people that come in through a piano background or a composition background or a guitar playing background or sometimes a vocal background. For me, um, it started in electronics. The first time I heard Wendy Carlos doing Switched on Bach, the idea of Bach being done on a totally different, uh, you know, medium was very appealing to me. And then Mr. Iseo Tomita, when uh, I was at a record store and saw Tomita's Firebird, and I just lost my mind. I was like, oh, my God, somebody has done Stravinsky on synthesizer. Um, I really felt that album was just for me. I brought it home, and I wore that thing out. I think I bought three (laughs) copies of it over over the years. Um, That's amazing. But my dad, bless his heart, he, he took... You know, he saw my interest in it, and he said, well, maybe we should get you a synthesizer. And I was like, wow, yes, thank you. He had no idea how expensive they were. You know, he thought this is a few hundred dollars, you know, it's going to be a flute or a violin. From Radio Shack or something. From Radio Shack, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So off we went to Long and McQuaid. This is Calgary, where I grew up, and uh, and I took him, and there, there sitting in the corner was this mini Moog. The store manager had been tired of seeing me because every day after school, I was at that store playing with the mini Moog until the manager threw me out. Um, so he said, you're finally here to get the thing. I said, yeah. And my dad looked at the price tag and he just gasped. And, uh, my mom was there and she was like, look, you know, he's not doing a big university degree. He's only going to community college. We, we can afford to, you know, this is his university kind of education. So let's get this for him. So bless my parents' heart. They went into the credit card and brought home a mini Moog. Awesome. Did he Um, freak out even more when he found out it was monophonic, that it didn't even come with polyphonic? It was not even chords? uh, (laughs) That's exactly it, you know, because I thought I was going to be Tamita overnight. So we had a four-track tape machine at home, and and there I was, you know, immediately trying to do giant, large orchestral things, you know, with a monophonic synthesizer. Um, And it sounded awful. Uh, My parents were just, you know, holding on to each other for dear life. Like, what have we done? (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, and a few weeks later, I started coming up with stuff that that didn't suck. That actually, you know, I figured out flute patches and I figured out these things. And and my dad brought his friends over once, and I was playing some melodies, and I showed them how I did a little tape echo trick thing so that it had a little bit of reverb to it. And after the friends left, my dad was just, I mean, he, you know, tears in his eyes. He was like, oh, thank goodness, this thing can actually make music. He was so thrilled. And uh, David, I don't think there's been a boring day since then. I like to ask when people have been doing, well, anything, really, any vocation, but especially a creative one for so many years, I'm always curious, how do they find the create the energy, the the inspiration or the new avenues to keep it fresh, like you just said. Yeah, that's a challenging one. I, I think we all do go through that. I think you, you just look for new ways to keep things interesting. I mean, certainly with synthesizers for the first few, <laughs> first few decades, you know, just there's so many aspects of it to learn. And it's not unlike, you know, it's a different form of orchestration. It's a different form of composition. You know, the more you start to learn, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. One type of waveform led to another, which led to different types of filters and left to different kinds of things. And I was, you know, gone down the rabbit hole and just thoroughly enjoyed it. But for me, my love was orchestral instruments. I loved orchestral instruments since I was a kid. I didn't know it wasn't cool. I thought everybody listened to classical music growing up. And then in, in elementary school, I'm beginning to realize, no, all these other kids don't listen to the Rite of Spring or the Planets <laughs> or the Firebird. So I thought, what the heck? So wanting to get into orchestral music as soon as possible and, and you know, large Stravinsky-like, Holst-like compositions were buzzing through my head. So sitting down and doing conventional piano and doing that route and orchestrating later, um, I was not interested in that. Piano lessons did not go well for me or my piano teacher. And in fact, I picked up all my theory much later in life because for me, certain weird skills that I have, my sight reading is pretty lousy because my ear is really good. And so three times through the piece, I kind of knew it. And so that doesn't help in the sight reading side of things. So that didn't work out. But suddenly with a, with a Minimoog and a four track, I could have my very own orchestra, you know, as long as I layer tracks one at a time and thought things through from the beginning as to what it is I wanted to do. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I roughed it out. I charted things out as to, as to how I wanted things to be done. And then it just, it just grew from there. It was my private little orchestra. Yeah, you're going through life, you're growing up, you're going through puberty, you're trying to date girls. None of them would listen to Jerry Goldsmith tracks. I didn't understand <laughs> why, you know, uh, Star Trek music. I mean, you know, I loved the original series of Star Trek because it's so melodic. The, the great composers of that time, uh, you know, Gerald Fried and Fred Steiner and Alexander Courage, of course, who wrote the Star Trek name. There's just so much beautiful melody and counter melody there, which is very 20th century, early 20th century harmony. So on my synthesizers, I was trying to create little Star Trek pieces, 15, 30-second sections of, of different Star Trek themes that I love. The exception of a couple of fellow nerd friends of mine, nobody else was interested in something like that. So eventually I had to learn how to play Elton John ballads, you know, in a party. And that way I could, I could stay at the party. But after everybody left, we would, we would dig up Jerry Goldsmith's Star Trek The Motion Picture and put on the Klingon theme. Uh, that was an amazing, amazing piece of music and just wore the grooves out on that. Did I answer your question? Um, yeah, yeah, I was actually went really interesting point going right back to when you said the Planet of the Apes and Star Wars were yeah. the, the catalyst. What was interesting is that, of course, you had obviously studied music because you knew that some of that was derived from Stravinsky or Holst. But it, it was the, the dramatic context John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith put those ideas from those classical pieces into, into a film kind of thing that really catapulted that interest in you, for you. 
It's funny, you um, you did an interview with Christopher Willis and, and talking about the academia aspect of it. And Christopher came from a world where it was very, very academia. And he had to work hard just to get attention to things like Beethoven because everything he was he was working with was, or at least the teachers he was working with, were into very, very atonal stuff. For me, I mean, academia didn't work for me. Like I said, initially, because of my limited reading ability, I mean, going into any kind of music school or getting into any that kind of stuff, certainly at that age, that wasn't possible. So anytime I did get into anything academic, I ran into a lot of highbrow people that would argue about the enharmonic uh, historical arguments against E flat versus D sharp. And I was not interested in that. You know, I was interested in, in figuring out more music from the masters. I mean, for me, it was, you know, and, and Dvorak and poking the new world symphony. I started figuring out how that melody worked. And my, you know, I was in the choir. So my choir teacher suddenly took an interest in me. And he was the one that kind of told me that you have perfect pitch. And that has been a big part of how I'm able to transcribe and do things. Even to this day, I'm still better off doing things by ear. And, and it's a combination of the perfect pitch. And recently, a weird thing I've discovered, which is synesthesia. I think that's a new thing we're all learning about ourselves is that, that in you know, many cases, your, your senses can be wired and that certain senses are wired to other senses. In my case, particular keys of music actually have a color. For some people, um, days of the week actually have a taste. It's fascinating stuff. I only learned this the last few years because of a series uh, X company that I worked on with Mark Ellis and Stephanie Morgenstern. And she's a synesthese, and she was telling me that it was very important that this particular piece of music that I'm writing uh, for this character on screen, because uh, he was a synesthese, and, and it has to be an E-flat. It has to be a really beautiful E-flat color. And that's when I looked at it, I said, no, no, E-flat is orange. <laughs> and that's when we both realized that this, this bizarre thing, uh, which... You know, looking backward, I think it, a combination of those two things probably helped. But I'm, I'm a freak of nature. I've, I've long since given up on trying to figure out how I got to where I am. I'm just very grateful I did. I had a lot of mentors growing up. I had a lot of wonderful, wonderful people who could, who could see something in me that I didn't even see in myself. Uh, it started with my parents, of course, and then it was, it was even that, that awful piano teacher whom I hated. She actually quietly told my parents, she said, just let him run free. I don't know where he's going, but he's off to something great. So just just let him run wild. That seems to be really paramount. Where where you have somebody at that that pivotal formative stage who has the vision to be able to let that person be free enough to investigate or really go down that avenue. Okay, you talk a little bit about that. The judges were uh, Oscar Peterson, Bob Moog, and uh, Tamita. Yeah, Tamita was actually one of the judges. Um, the guy that heard my tape was Ralph Dyke, who's a programmer for Roland, and he, he became a mentor to me. Um, but yeah, it was uh, the back of Keyboard Magazine. Uh, a friend of mine, Dave Kletke, showed me the, the ad, and Roland was doing a very cool thing. They were trying to you know, encourage the industry, and so they were doing these uh, synthesizer tape competitions where you were submitting something. And it didn't even matter if it wasn't a Roland synth. They didn't care. They were just interested in, in sparring the industry forward, which I thought was very, very great of them. So I had a mini Moog and a four track. And I, I, was, I had been working on a science fiction radio play with a college friend of mine. And, uh, and the radio play didn't, didn't take off. But I had started building some themes and ideas that I was very happy with. And I built them in a modular way so that you could splice them together. And, uh, and so I decided to finish that off. It was a five-minute piece, and I sent it off, and I put my name in the amateur category. And, uh, you know, weeks later, months later, I got a thank you letter, uh, you know, for entering the competition. But there was no indication that I won because I looked in the amateur category, and my name wasn't there. 
Um, this story comes up from time to time. I nearly threw the piece of paper away. Uh, out of curiosity, I want to turn around and say, okay, who, who did win? Who were, the, who were the bigger people that you know, got into this? And so there was the class B category and the class A category. And then at the very top, there was grand prize. And my name was there. And I, I remember just screaming, Dad, get down here. And we, we couldn't believe it. Um, but they had heard enough. The fact that I was doing all this large-scale orchestration stuff with a four-track and a mini-moog um, and the methods that I was using to create these things uh, apparently was, was uh, very revolutionary. Um, and I think it's because I had limitations. You know, you only had a four-track. You only had a mini-moog. So if I really wanted to, to build, you know, even a four-voice brass choir, I've got to do those, you know, monophonically one line at a time. And, and bounce the tracks very carefully so you don't build up noise on the tape machine. So I had two tape machines bouncing off of each other. Um, and, and between that and my radio training, because I was actually studying broadcasting, I went to technical, uh, went to technical college, and my plan was to be a radio engineer producer, and, and that was going to be the day job. So my experience with engineering and tape, I think, I think made a difference. So I was able to watch the gain structure of the different synthesizer tracks carefully. Um, the competition was amazing, and I won some gear, which was amazing. I got the TR-808, and I got a CSQ-600 sequencer. So, you know, I was off to the races building my studio. But the tape got to the attention of people like David Foster and Steve Beccaro. And so overnight, I'm getting all this attention from Los Angeles, from these amazing producer, synthesist, keyboardists wanting to know how I was doing what I was doing. David Foster flew me down to Los Angeles to work with him for a week, you know, in his home studio, which was amazing. The whole thing was actually very intimidating. And, I mean, David was looking for something that was more of a pop side of things, and I was I was orchestral guy. So, you know, some things panned out, but but not a lot. It was Steve Piccaro years later that actually was the one that convinced me to really kind of take a run at this. Because by then, I was still catching up on my theory. I didn't think of myself as a, as a composer and didn't even think of myself as a musician. And Steve was the one that was just like, if you can come up what you're coming up with, who cares how you do it? just get into a studio and, and do it. And I think on every interview I've ever done, I have to thank my mentor, Steve Piccaro, because not only is he a brilliant musician, composer, synthesist, right? One of the one of the best in the world. But he also was the one to just, who understood what I was trying to do and both taught me things and I apparently taught him things that really changed how he made me, he made music. The way you came onto the scene was actually very, very unique because yes, you had... Wendy Carlos and you had Tomita and they were redoing classical pieces. Nobody at that time was doing uh, melodic, lush orchestrations, original music, like a soundtrack, like a film score with using synths. Yeah, it was a combination of so many things that I, you know, I guess until that moment, no one else had had put together before because I was very involved in creative arts like growing up. So everything, music, drama, you know, I did acting for, for a while. There was so many aspects of storytelling that I really loved. So it's a combination of all of that. And so suddenly I wanted this John Williams kind of orchestral large sound, a Holst, you know, kind of sound. I wanted to do it with synthesizers. At the time, samplers were now starting to come into the world. And samplers, as you know, are not synthesizers. They are actually digital snapshots of real sound. There's a giant chord on, uh, Stravinsky, um, on Stravinsky's Firebird uh, in, in A minor, just uh, the, the big infernal dance of King Cachet at the very beginning. And it got sampled, and it is everywhere. It just got used everywhere. This big orchestral hit, bam, you know. 
Yeah, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Uh, and, and I really hate that. It belongs in one place. It belongs in the fourth movement of Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, and that's where it should stay. So I did not want to do that. And I, so I deliberately um, did it all with analog and FM synths. So by then I had, uh, well, it was, it was you know, a couple of Roland synthesizers, JX-10. I had an Oberheim expander, which I'd gotten from Steve Picaro from the projects I'd done with him. Uh, and then it was the Yamaha DX7 line, which was FM synthesis. It was a brighter, more metallic sound. And so combining all of those with a Roland microcomposer, and, and so there I was with an 8-track tape machine, who I'd moved to 8-tracks by then, and 64 tracks of layers and layers and layers, three months alone in my apartment putting this whole thing together. Steve Picaro had helped me get a record deal, uh, and that's what became what is known as the Interstellar Suite. The sound page, thank you, keyboard, and, and you mentioned Keith Emerson earlier. Uh, that piece got in because Keith Emerson was up against a deadline and he couldn't make the deadline. He was involved in another project. So suddenly I got a call from Dominic Milano, whom I'd come to know through a Vancouver uh, synth convention. And he said, that thing you did with Steve Picaro, that test piece you did, can we get it? <laughs> and so literally overnight we were, on the, we were on the cover of Keyboard Magazine and that sound page. Uh, and then that's what cinched the record deal. And that's how Interstellar still still sweet. So the so the piece that won the Roland competition was Flight Beyond the Stars, which became the launch piece. So that's that's the third movement in the suite. And then uh, what we call the Manor March, uh, which was David Page's Manor Studio, where we put it together. That became the overture. The Interstellar suite kind of grew from from all of that. It was very exciting. Uh, the record label had all kinds of big plans. There was going to be a big planetarium presentation at the Griffith Park Observatory. And Steve Picaro was getting ready to surprise me with uh, bringing a friend of his by the name of Jerry Goldsmith. So Jerry was going to hear Interstellar Suite at the Griffith Planetarium. As you can imagine, that did not happen. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, I would be telling you the story. The record label had problems, the distribution problem stuff, record labels and managers and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's so messy. It really is. And by the time we finished Interstellar Suite, the people at Capitol Records, whom we had originally talked to, they had been fired and replaced by a whole group of other people. So no one knew what we were about. And all those big planetarium presentations, I mean, that all got canceled. We got a big appearance at a dive bar somewhere on La Cienega. And, and all four of us artists, myself, uh, Patrick Mraz, uh, Michael Honig, and Pete Bardens. You know, it was a big schmooze party. And it was just, a, a, you know, two free drink tickets. And they, they piped our albums through these awful PA speakers in the ceiling. And that was it. The record, you know, the label barely got released. There was no promotion, no distribution, no nothing. I think there's only a thousand copies out there. It was quite a letdown. I mean, you know, I told Steve, we're not going to the planetarium. We're going to La Cienega. And Steve was like, okay, well, I'm not going to bring Jerry Goldsmith to a dive bar at La Cienega. I did get to meet Jerry uh, months later. Steve actually made it possible for me to be a fly on the wall on a recording session that he was doing. So, But anyway, um, so that's Interstellar Suite was, was the biggest, most fun I had. I mean, to this day, it's one of the most personal projects that I've ever done. Um, it was very exciting. And then the most depressing thing ever when nothing came of it. I, I wished I had never done it because that was years of my life for this big moment that, that never happened. But it was the internet and it was wonderful people like you reading Keyboard Magazine that the album kind of found its second calling. And then, of course, when the internet happened and bulletin boards were first, right? You had all these different, you know, record arts, news group things that you could go to. And that's, that's where 
composer friend, Donald Kwan, called me and said, do you know that you're the subject of, of a news group? I was like, what are you talking about? And all these Interstellar Suite fans, they loved it. They wanted to find another copy of their album because their copy had worn out. One of your first forays uh, into TV was Kung Fu The Legend Continues, right? You did right. some work on that. Yeah. How did that come about? How did you move from... I think um, Interstellar Suite led to a couple of films, which led to one of the biggest films I ever worked on, although it was a very painful project, was Iron Eagle 2 with Sidney Fury. That was technically the first big project I did. I had done another film before then, which kind of got me onto the onto the scene, which was a film uh, called Storm by David Winning. Um, that was wonderful to work on. And again, that was a smaller, more intimate project. And David and I were, you know, had good dialogues of how we could do things. The large project that I went to after that was actually was quite daunting because it was just a lot of people throwing a lot of money at a lot of different problems. But there was no choreography. And the final, the final result, I think, was quite just a big, noisy film. But I'd come to meet... Well, two people I have to thank. James Porteous, who was a college friend, you know, talk about mentors and champions. He was the one that actually started playing all my synthesizer tapes to various producers all, all, you know, all, all around Canada. And it was David Green, the esteemed producer who had done a lot of work here in Toronto. He was originally from New York and had opened Manta Sound. And he took a liking to my work because he could hear the orchestral, but also the, the way I was able to do it with electronics. And so for many years, David and I worked on a lot of projects with him as engineer producer and me as composer. And many orchestral things that David had learned, as in orchestral engineering things and organizational things, David taught me. David is a brilliant combination of very passionate musician who understands music and also a very organized, disciplined guy. It's rare to see both. You either find some people that are really disciplined, but they don't, they don't have a lot of passion, or you meet people that are very, very passionate and completely disorganized. And David is one of those rare people that has both. And I learned a lot from him. I, and and I, I call him my second father. He hates that, but I'm going to say it. He's like <laughs> a dad to me. And uh, yeah, we, we still meet up. We have, you know, well, I mean, you know, COVID has really stopped all that. But I can't wait to meet him at Queens Key near where he lives and sit down and have a, have a, have a lovely lunch together. He's, 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 you know, an amazing mentor. He changed my life. I, I thanked him for that. I said, you know, you changed my life. And, and in his typical New York curmudgeonly way, he said, eh, it needed changing. It's very, very sweet, man. Um, with John Wu, right, on yeah, Once a well, Thief. Exactly. So that's that's how all those projects led. And it was a combination of the connections that David knew and the systems that we had both built together, which allowed us to do a lot of music in a very short amount of time. So Kung Fu was that. Uh, John Wu was Once a Thief. Um, Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Uh, Free just, Willy? Just, there pardon some, me? Yeah, Free, Free Willy. Yeah. You've been doing your homework, haven't you? Yeah, Free Willy was a lot of fun, actually, too. So, so yeah, all, all kinds of various projects, and, and then the, the building got larger, and then David got into some corporate stuff with the, with, the, with the company that he was in, and so it made more sense for me to kind of break away and do my own thing, so then I had a place on Adelaide Street. I had a studio there for 14 years, and that's how I, that's how I came to know of Ari Posner, and Ari's a brilliant jazz pianist, and he covers all the areas that I don't. We both overlap when it comes to orchestral writing, but as I got into more and more projects and was being asked to write in more and more diverse styles, I realized it would be better to have collaborators around me. But Ari and I have done the most amount of work together. Um, yeah, you have a good symbiosis. I, I yeah. watched that YouTube thing on uh, Flashpoint. They were talking about how you would look at the, the print and then uh, decide who does what. And, and it seemed like a really good 
good partnership. Dave, you're a very, very good journalist, sir. You've done all your homework. Like you've done, you've dug up all these obscure things. That's... Well, I, I have to say, I'm, and that, the reason why I was bugging you for Iron Eagle too is I, I it was a while ago, but I remember running across something you written that was really kind of goldsmith like, and I was just I was blown away because. I mean, I've said this a few times. It's like a lot of people try to copy John Williams, but nobody seems to copy Jerry Goldsmith. Either they can't, or it's like sacred ground or something. But I think it's more of the, the former than the latter. I just think people can't write like that, especially with the modern tools. Those kind of mixed meters and additive rhythms, like Stravinsky, right. you can't do right. that, or you do it easily. Right. No, just it takes playing, it playing takes around work. like in real time and, you know, whatever right. dog right. of choice. It's just you can't do it. Yeah. It takes more of, again, you were saying that, that deliberate thought and architecture yep. to, to compose a piece. So I was really knocked out by that. It's like, so. I want to hear that again. I don't know where it <laughs> went, but it was really good. Oh, bless your heart. No, I, I mean, Jerry Goldsmith is definitely an influence. I mean, anybody listening to my stuff will certainly hear homages to Jerry Goldsmith. And and again, a certain a certain era of Jerry Goldsmith, because I mean, yeah. you know, and, and both John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith, right, we probably could say that they're at the very top. Uh, James Newton Howard is also a huge favorite of mine. They all had different periods in their life where they wrote certain styles. You listen to Papillon by Jerry Goldsmith. You you can't believe that that's the same person that did The Omen, that that's the same person that did The Great Train Robbery. Well, no, there's a couple of Jerry Goldsmith stories. I, I don't know if I'll tell you the second one, but the first one I will tell you is um, he was scoring Poltergeist 2, and I got a chance to go in there. Uh, Steve had, you know, had a chance to go visit him. Uh, and he had come to know Steve Picard through all, all the programming stuff, right? As Jerry worked more and more with synthesizers, he came to know the synthesizer aficionados of the day. Uh, which were definitely Steve and David Page uh, and Michael Boddicker and uh, and Ian Underwood and people like that. Jerry was certainly, as we can hear, very, very influenced in understanding what, what all these different types of instruments could do. But yeah, I walked in and, uh, and I could hear this motif that was in Poltergeist 2 and it was undeniably Jerry, but the strings were just rehearsing it so it was just lumbering along slowly. And it was so amazing just to, to see and hear the birth of a Jerry cue right in, in front of me. It was made more interesting because Jerry apparently had a really bad day and so he was in a surly mood and the strings were just not working for him and he was just reaming them out. But it was funny, you know, they did a take and we were all in the room in the control room just smiling and beaming like, that's a beautiful Jerry Goldsmith. That's vintage Jerry. That's, you know, undeniably beautiful Jerry Goldsmith. And and Jerry wasn't happy. We were all happy, but he wasn't. And he insisted we do another take. And he was screaming at uh, at the concertmaster to a particular Boeing thing that the violin should be doing. So everybody takes a deep breath and a big sigh and they go at it again. Lo and behold, it was better. It absolutely was better. Even the concertmaster had to admit, hiding his own ego, he's like, yeah, okay, you know, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you'll have it. But it did sound better. It was a big lesson that, yeah, it can't always be fun and games. You can't always be best friends with what you've got to do. You've got to just, what does the screen need? What does the music need? Get your own ego out of the way and just, you know, what does the film want? I don't know if you found this, but, you know, in many creative arguments you have with people, whether it's a collaborator or whether it's the filmmaker or I want to hear this. Well, I think it should be this. If you just really take a step back and say, what's best for the film? What's happening here on screen? Where are we in the in in the movie? And where is the where is the turning point? Where's the shift of power? Where is the big learning thing? And many times you sometimes just have to bite your tongue and realize 
what is it, humble pie, that guess what? Your big melody isn't going to work there, and what you're writing may actually be too big. Um, that was one of the biggest lessons from David Green. Like, he would tell me to rewrite my music. I was like, what? Just engineer it, okay? I'll give you the tracks. You don't tell me how to write. <laughs> but he did, and son of a gun, it sounded better with that kind of trust, and we, we both challenged each other to try things. And I think that's – I think I'm, I'm, think I'm a better composer because of all these wonderful people I've – I've collaborated with or who have mentored me. That's probably any composer would cite those people that they work with, those really good creative collaborations where someone pushes them outside their ego or their comfort zone to look back at that music and possibly reimagine it so it'll fit the scene. And uh, a lot of times it does. uh, Or at least this is back when I think maybe um, there seemed to be a little bit more equanimity between the director and then the director's respect for the composer. I don't know. I don't work in this current uh, age. Have you seen a shift? The good news and bad news is we can do everything so much faster than we ever could before. Just, you know, we can we can accomplish so much in, in far less time. The bad news is that we have to accomplish so much more in far less time. And so all of that stuff about a filmmaker and a composer getting to know each other. Much of that time has been taken away. So you have to consciously get out of all that technology and really get to see the person face to face. I mean, COVID has not helped that situation. Certainly. Yeah, true. You know, the as you know, the importance of chemistry between a between a filmmaker and a composer. You, the, the trust is is you know is something indescribable, and it just ha- it just comes from two people getting to know each other. But to your point, I don't think it's a particular person or a particular thing. I think it's just a particular combination of relationships. As you can tell, I'm a very energetic person. There's people that get along with my introvert extrovert combination of personality, and 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 I think there's some people that don't that that want somebody <laughs> quieter and 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 not so excitable. Conversely, I've worked with some filmmakers that I just don't. I can't get where they're going. I don't know what it is they're expecting of me. And then when they feel it too, it just becomes messy. And then there's other compo- you know, other filmmakers I've worked with where we, we just can't do enough. Like the film is over and we still get together just to have coffee because we just enjoy each other's company. It's the chemistry. It absolutely is. And that hasn't changed. That has not changed. It is still about creative people collaborating together to create something um, that audiences will love and will make money. You know, that's the duality of it all. What, what was the, the chemistry like on uh, Jane Goodall's Wild Chimpanzees? Because I love that score. That was an amazing opportunity. I started doing IMAX films with David Lickley. Uh, I think that was the second one we did together. And it began with me having to supervise some of the songs because we were working with the brilliant Johnny Clegg. But again, you know, here's to here's to politics and legal stuff. They wanted to use certain songs uh, from his amazing catalog of, of great songs. But the rights in getting the masters and the recording and all that stuff was so complicated. It cost less to have him bring in the musicians, do the songs again in South Africa, and fly me over to supervise the recording so that it worked for all the IMAX specifications. And so that's that's how we did it. And then from that moment on, David, knowing after the work we had just done on the previous film, he got me to also uh, also do the score. And we got to take melodies from Johnny Clegg's uh, wonderful catalog, and we were able to use some of those melodies in the score. So the songs and the score have a conversation with each other, which I think is wonderful, because in so many cases, the song is just thrown in at the last minute. A poor music supervisor is dealing with hundreds of entries, and then at the very last minute, the one that finally got all the rights cleared, that's the one that goes in. 
and it's and in some cases it's very well done, but in many cases it's just that tacky thing thrown off at you know thrown on in the end or or somewhere silly in the middle. For song and score integration, which yeah. by the way I think that's a real a real craft and talent. Was it Mysteries of the Great Lakes where you took Gordon Lightfoot, or was yeah. it, am I thinking of a different one? Okay. No, you got it right, David. You're that's this is amazing. You are the official biographer of my life from this moment on. Like wow, <laughs> you know I'm gonna start forgetting things. I think I can call you. Go, David. What was that film <laughs> I did? Who did I do? Mark Mancina did something like that in Twister. There was an a, a Van Halen piece that they started with. He was ramping up to it, so his score had the the sort of the the, the kernels of whatever that Van Halen piece was, but it kind right. of ramps off to it, and then it cuts into the actual song. And I thought, right. okay, that's freaking brilliant right. because you're you're priming. Yes. Oh yeah. And again, it's conversations. It's like you know, if if you're listening to a song and there's something in the fourth minute that you really don't like, changing something in the second minute can make all the difference. Because for all this non-linear stuff, we still watch and listen to things linearly. We go from start to the end. We haven't, we haven't started on time travel of listening or watching things yet. So you can get so hung up in how the order in minutia details of, of certain parts of your film, but then you have to run it all together and, and foreshadowing and paying things off and how moving one little thing around, you know, swapping two scenes will make such a difference in how the narrative, uh, narrative comes out. Mysteries of Great Lakes, that's one of my favorite scores that, that David and I did together, David Lickley and I did together, and, um, you know, taking that song and being able to adapt it and and having the Toronto Symphony play alongside Gordon Lightfoot's song, I mean, what a joy that was. It sounded gorgeous, too, by the way. The, the performance was amazing. Uh, it was, yeah, they did a wonderful, wonderful job. On that one, I got to, um, uh, I've worked with orchestrator Jamie Hopkins. Jamie is the guy that helps me realize all this synthesizer stuff and and, and take it to real players. But I also got to work with orchestrator Mickey Irby, who is, well, the late Mickey Irby. We lost him recently. Mickey's an amazing composer in himself. He and Mary Beth did a, did a lot of IMAX films together. And uh, Earth to Final Conflict, I think, uh, was a show that they both did. But my, uh, my regular orchestrator, Jamie, wasn't available. So, you know, Jamie suggested I ask Mickey. And how gracious of him to say, no problem, you know, um, to kind of step down from his esteemed composer podium and, and just help me with orchestration and conducting. And he was wonderful. And is a, I think is a big part of how that, you know, how that whole project turned out as beautiful as it did. Documentaries are, are probably a great genre to get into. It is. That is a whole new foray. And, and again, I think some of that is because filmmaking has become, you know, it, filmmaking has become easier. There's a, there's a level of quality, technical quality, which we have now surpassed. You know, you can have all these story arguments, but, but cameras now shoot better and, and, you know, audio systems and computers now record better audio. So you can certainly make a better quality film technically. And I think that's why documentary filmmaking, I think it's just, you know, it's improved in quality because you can still have all those those techniques of guerrilla filmmaking and grabbing things on the fly. But now it's all really, really high quality stuff. So Drones yeah. and things like that. You can get yeah. shots that you could, you would have had to hire a, a helicopter and very expensive camera equipment. Isn't originally. that amazing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Those are the good things. Those are the, those are the good things we can be proud of. Absolutely. And short films too. I mean, that's a huge, yeah. uh, a huge area where the quality is is unbelievable. I know there's some guys in Los Angeles that wanted to make their own Batman movie, so they did a GoFundMe and they yeah. did a, a, their own Batman movie. Yep, yep. I started working on some short films with some student composers or friends of mine that have asked me to help them out on uh, student filmmakers, and I've written the score for them, and that's been a lot of fun. It's 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 nice. You have this eight you know twelve minute arc. Uh, you know, it reminds me of what Jerry Goldsmith would have done with the Twilight Zone episodes on radio. 
you know, when you had to just, you had to be very functional for certain things. Um, it's a lot of fun. And and some of the stuff that you're doing now, and I know you received a few awards just recently for, it was a Luna Around the World, right? Uh, I... Yeah. Yeah, and it's okay. That show has changed titles so many times I can't even okay. remember. It used to be Luna Around the World. Now it's Let's Go Luna or Luna Let's Go because the song is like that. I don't know. I, I, let me think. It's Let's Go Luna. Great show. Ari asked me to help him on it, and I was kind of reluctant at first because I've done a lot of animation, and I wasn't sure I wanted to get back into that kind of you know, cartoony kind of writing. But I get to do Carl Stalling stuff. There's some amazing gags on that show, and it's really well done. And it's like the Looney, you know, like the Looney Tunes cartoons. So I get to do uh, all those Looney Tune things, you know. And the humor comes from these really precisely done, very large orchestral things. And I've gotten to do a lot of that, and we've had a lot of fun. And then, yeah, there's that and Detention Adventure, which is, uh, which is this wonderful fantasy series. Uh, and then we had just come off of Anne with an E. And all those won a CSA Awards Actually, I did want to ask you about uh, a little bit about Anne with an E because that's a show that is going to suggest a certain type of style. Um, again, and you know this yourself. I mean, the the film the film tells you what to do. The picture tells you what to do. I mean, we can all look backwards at things. I wish I had scored Star Trek. You know, there's so many different iterations of the Star Trek franchise out there. I would love to score one of those because that's kind of my vocabulary. The you know that kind of writing is what I think I do. I do well. But these other things have come along that have been wonderful surprises. I mean, Flashpoint was the ultimate amazing surprise. Um, and and if, you, if you listen through all those hip-hop loops and all that very dense synthesizer production, you will hear all kinds of very 20th century classical references and, 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 and styles and vocabularies. And we had wonderful producers and writers who, who challenged us to do that. So Flashpoint was kind of like Star Trek. You have this team, you know, except they're not out in space. They're cops. They're the SRU. And, and they, they have to work together, and they're a family, and they go through their ups and downs while dealing with these extraordinary situations. And so suddenly it was like, yeah, this is my Star Trek. And so I got to write some really big stuff and some really, really small stuff. And Anne with an E, um, and it's interesting, in both cases, Flashpoint and Anne with an E, we had pitched on the projects, and we didn't get it initially. But the person that did get it was not used to the scoring deadlines. They were not used to having come to, coming up with 20 minutes of music every week. So in both cases, Flashpoint and Anne with an E, we were suddenly called and said, you're on. <laughs> my wife and I were moving to our townhome the, the day my agent called and said, you start on Anne with an E tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm still apologizing to my darling wife, Danielle, for leaving her with all the movers and all the crap because I was <laughs> suddenly working on eight episodes of season one with Ari. Uh, and we were quickly learning on the fly, both what the producers were wanting, but then also many, many different styles of, of music. I mean, Ari really, really gravitated towards the Celtic stuff. He did that really well. And, and again, he has a songwriter background, so the nature of the folk songs and stuff, he was able to grab to that really quickly. Um, for me, I got to do a lot of the ambient stuff and the classical stuff, but the vocabulary was, you know, it was not... It was not Stravinsky or Shostakovich or Prokofiev. It was earlier. It was Brahms. It was Beethoven. Um, and so, uh, you know, a, a, you know, what was initially a very restrictive thing for me harmonically, one of the kindest compliments I got from somebody was a piece I wrote, and someone said, that sounds exactly like Schumann. And I thought, wow, what an honor. You know, and that person asked me, they said, what Schumann piece did you use? And I was like, no, no, I wrote that in the style of Schumann. They <laughs> yeah. said, yes, but which Schumann piece did you use? I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Um, so, so that was quite a compliment. And um, again, the film tells you what to do. And, and you know, in both those shows, we had wonderful collaborators that had a very strong vision of what they were looking for. We had some wonderful arguments. There were things that they threw out that we fought for, and there were things that we suggested which they thought would never work, and they worked amazingly, you know. But everybody respected each other. Every time we, we got together and went to work, we just wanted to do the best that we could. And so everybody left their egos at the door. And so the arguments were never about power or insults or anything like that. It was just like, how do we make this the best we can? And I think, I think that's a big part of it. Well, that's a time crunch because it, it clearly used real musicians on some cues. So then you have to also logistically arrange to get that, that performance recorded and then yeah, as well. So that's extra. And, and this is one of the great things about today's technology. And in, interestingly enough, we had, a, we, had, we had come up with this te- technique, and many composers have, just before COVID happened. And so what we did was, because it needed to have a chamber sound, and there were some very important solo instruments, but we were churning out music so quickly, Ari in his studio and I in mine, to then plan a recording session where we're going to add in all the live players. And, you know, especially while we're working on multiple episodes, because we're in the middle of episode two, but there was something that came back from episode one, and we had to have something ready for being on set for episode four. There's a, you know, one of the, one of the characters plays something on the piano. We had to have something ready for that. Um, we learned very quickly that, that our, and we have an amazing stable of musicians around us now all over the country, and they are amazing first-class, you know, world-class players, uh, but they have their own studios. So Kurt Starkey, my cellist in Hamilton, uh, and his wife, Sarah Trafficante, who plays flutes, um, uh, um, Drew Jureka, who plays violin, Drew plays so many different instruments, uh, Joel Schwartz, who does guitars, um, uh, I'm blanking, Kirk, Drew, Joe, and Sarah. Okay, those are the, those are the ones on, uh, on Anne with an E. With Bev spotting our contractor, she made sure that all the homework was done correctly for how to pay all the musicians properly. Um, but, you know, Ari and I could write a cue, you know, send the MIDI file to Drew. Two hours later, we would get the violin part, drop it into the session, mix it that night, send it off to the director the following morning. And, and you know, now, that's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of different talents, uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, I'm, you know, as I'm, I'm trying to impart things that will be of help to people as we're talking like this, you know, you have to know what you, you have to know what your strengths are, you have to know what your weaknesses are. Um, you know, my strengths are, you know, they're in composition, they're in engineering. I, I'm not a great player. I mean, I didn't, you know, piano was never really, you know, I didn't really formally study piano. It was, you know, keyboards became my instrument. You know, I mean, the first, my, my first instrument was a mini moog. So I'm, I'm actually a woodwind player when you really look at it that way. And, you know, and, and Ari plays piano way better than I do. And he, you know, so, so more of the piano cues go towards him. But I've, I've now started writing some piano pieces that have actually done quite well. Um, so for me, performance is always the trickier thing. So if it really gets complicated, well, then, you know, maybe Ari will help me with some of that. Or I'll bring in, I'll, you know, I'll bring in players. But engineering chops, I'm pretty good at that. Um, you know, I, I, you know, Ari has, has said this, that I'm, I'm, I'm better at the engineering than he is. So I help him on, on things like that. Um, so you've just got to know what your skills are and you've got to know where, where you know, you need some help. And, uh, you know, I, we, we all know great composers that, you know, that work wonderfully on pen and paper and, and would never want to wander into a studio. That's fine. So you find a great engineer producer to work with them. 
Um, and like I said, I, I have some amazing people around me. And, and when we deal with really large orchestral stuff, I do all the mock-ups and get the director to sign off on it. And then Jamie helps me, you know, transcribe and orchestrate it for, for real players. Luckily, that illusion of the lone genius is evaporating. Jerry Goldsmith leaned on, Ma uh, not Max Steiner, Fred Steiner to, to write some stuff. I think Fred Steiner even wrote a cue in Return of the Jedi, if I'm not mistaken. So... Wouldn't it be I mean, neat they, to actually confirm all of these things? Because, yes, I've heard that. The other one I heard is that Thomas Newman orchestrated a cue for John Williams. Thomas Newman was a student of his. Oh, really? That, oh, yeah. Really? And, wow. uh, but, yeah, every, you know, everybody relies on people. And let's not forget the orchestrators, right? I mean, Arthur Morton, Her Herbert W. Spencer. Uh, there was a significant change in the sound of each of those composers when the orchestrators left and then other orchestrators came on board. You know, Sandy Courage did a lot of orchestrating for both of those composers. So, yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's a team effort. Definitely that, that lone genius thing has, has gone away. It's a romanticized change. idea, and it's, it's not really accurate. I mean, obviously, I think people are holding more of some other... Uh, individuals, which we won't mention, but they've sort of created sort of industri in industry type sort of a generic sound, which it, maybe that's where the criticism's coming from. But you know, it, it was something know. I actually got pigeonholed into myself. I mean, you know, my my initial synthesizer experiments, which which came to the attention of some producers and stuff, they said, "Wow, we really like this sound," and I'm like, "Well, thank you." But I always wanted to take it to the next level. Like synthesizers were the beginning for me to what I wanted to actually be, you know, real orchestral players. Um, and the best scores, I think, are a combination of the two. I think, I think what you can do with synths and, and, and live players, the combination of the two is amazing. But, yeah, there were times people said, no, we don't want to give you an orchestra. Just do it all on synths. And I was like, I don't want to just do it all on synths. We have the budget for some players. You know, I'll put in some money. Can we please have some live players? And they were like, that's not why we hired you. You know, we hired you because we didn't want live players. I was like, oh, no. So well, even Wendy Carlos had that problem. The When she, she got hired for Tron, apparently, they were just going to give her the electronic stuff, and they were going to hire somebody else. He said, I have a PhD no. in music. <laughs> like, I can I write know. for orchestra, too. <laughs> I know. I love Tron. I think Tron has some beautiful cues in there, some amazing writing, that beautiful scherzo that she did, even just the combination of those orchestral you know, flourishes when the, when the wormhole thing happens. There's some beautiful writing in that. I was so disappointed to find out that they did not use, not only they didn't ask Wendy Carlos to write, but they didn't even use any of her music in the in the Tron reboot or the sequel. Is it a reboot? Is it a sequel? I don't know. I think it was a sequel. Um, uh, speaking of sequels, but not really sequels, I just I, I wanted to definitely cover um, some of your upcoming stuff. Now, I noticed on IMDb that A Brief History of the Unicorn and Together Alone are two... Are those projects are finished now, or are they just finished filming? They're, they're finished. They're actually okay. they're shorts. Uh, oh, okay. Brief History of the Unicorn was done by oh, I think I've got her. Own, I think I think her name is Mina. I hope I got it right. Mina Mancuso, filmmaker, um, who is the daughter of Joe Mancuso, our, our esteemed music editor. And Joe came to me and said, "Listen, you know, can you help out here?" And I was very happy to. And Mina came to me. She said, I want something that's like Tamita. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> no problem. So I had a wonderful time there. Yeah, so lots of ambient, uh, very analog synthesizer stuff. I had a ball with that. Um, and then the other film uh, is uh, for Darren Hinchy, who um, is a, a budding filmmaker and works, uh, you know, worked as a VFX specialist and, and now, uh, you know, directing and doing his own films. 
he came to me and asked for some help on on the score, and I was very happy to do that. It was a very ambient guitar-like kind of stuff for this post-apocalyptic short that he was doing. I, we didn't talk a lot about gear, so I have to, of course, throw the the gear thing in there just at, at, towards the end. Is sort of what what are you uh, working with mostly? This I know you're you're on Logic and and uh, Mac. Is anything that you really find indispensable? You know, it's an assortment of things, but it really is. Um, you know, it, it's like you learn one instrument of the orchestra at a time, and then when you then add to it, you don't let go of the previous one. You know, so having done this for years and decades now, um, you know, there's still synths here from the very beginning when I started. You know, the, the Polymog is in the corner. There's a Moog Voyager now. Um, Steve Ficaro's Oberheim Expander is over here. Um, and so the old stuff and the new stuff all, all work together. Uh, as far as plugins, it's everything from you know Spectrosonics to Arturia to um, you know, and then and then all the various uh, symphonic sample things. You know, I, I I gave in and had to start using samples just because that was the sound people wanted. But I'm still a firm believer in recording lines one at a time. It takes longer, but don't just hit the string orchestra patch. Even if it's octave strings, I don't I don't think octave strings are even convincing enough. Do the violin, you know, do the violins, do the violas, do them separately um, so that that octave thing still blurs a little bit so that it's not, you know, it's not a, this unified sound. Because a real orchestra, you hear a sweeping, you know, string octave line, um, you know, that's not locked together. That's, you know, that's 30, 40 people uh, in unison. I spent, and it takes longer sometimes, and on some cues I have to, I have to forego it, which I really hate to do. But on, on, you know, on cues where I have the time, I literally build in all the lines one at a time uh, using the Vienna Symphonic Library, the woodwind libraries from there. I've used those for years now, and they work really well. Um, and I'm, I'm putting all those lines in one at a time. So I'm not playing the woodwinds patch. I'm doing, you know, flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and, and doing it that way. And I think that makes, makes a huge difference. So. Well, that's because, of course, getting right back to the beginning, you had the methodology and the technology informed the methodology. You had a four-track recorder with a monophonic sound source, so you had to do things contrapuntally. You hadn't, you couldn't play chords. You had to develop your harmony through counterpoint. I thank you for recognizing that because, to be honest, I've only started to realize that over the last few years. And maybe something to do with the way analog synths are coming back. You know, and everybody's getting into Eurorack and all these strange, wonderful, weird sounds coming out of that, which, you know, usually are coming out of monophonic oscillators. But, yeah, over the years, and, and again with mentors like Steve Piccaro and David Green to kind of remind me that, yes, this strange way that I learned, you know, you know, the Minimoog taught me orchestration, the four-track taught me harmony, and the sequencer taught me form. And it's this strange combination of those things. And, and you know, and over the years as I, as I formalized my learning and caught up on a lot of things, it's been neat learning about things that I instinctively was always writing. I was, you know, as a particular mode or a particular, you know, type of, 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 you know, melodic structure that I like to do. And then it was like, oh, that's, that's octatonic. Oh, that's what I've been doing all this time. You know, stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, a few years ago, finally caught up on a lot of that stuff. So far, there's one film I've done where there wasn't a note of synthesizers used. And I knew that going in. So the mock-ups could be really crappy. Because all they had to do was fit the picture timings and convey to the director what the melody was. But he was happy with, yeah, he was happy with lousy strings and crappy brasses. Um, and I didn't have to think about making it sound good. And I have never written so joyously and so fast and so complex in my life because I didn't have to think about executing it. 
And uh, we got the Munich Symphony. Uh, Jamie helped me orchestrate it. We got the Munich Symphony to conduct it. Um, it's a film called Heavy. Un- um, well, there's two titles for it. One's, one title's called Going Back, and the other one is called Under Heavy Fire. Just like what you talked about working on Staff Pad, me not having to think about making the string sound good, but just working on intervals and melodies and chords and, and, and voice leading that I knew would work. I, I remember writing it so fast because I didn't have to think about making it sound good. Just work out the harmony as I was going, and, uh, and it was a seamless transition to the orchestra. So I want to do more like that. Uh, my next goal is it would be nice to conduct an orchestra. It would be nice to conduct some of my cues and really be on the podium and, and make those changes and make those balances and be able to do that. Ever thought of doing uh, concert work? Or just a pure abstract music or even a programmatic piece? You know what? Absolutely. And, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. If somebody comes up to me and wants me to do that, that would be great. Uh, I, I have looked at getting into trying to get some grants and trying to get some, some commissions and stuff. It's all very, very competitive. And I'm very grateful. I don't want this to come off sounding snobby. I'm very grateful that I have enough work going on in film and TV that I haven't really had time to pursue that side of things. I have worked on albums. You know, uh, Virtuality was the sequel to Interstellar Suite. And I got to use live players there. And some of my Interstellar Suite fans told me, how dare you use live players? And I was like, are you kidding? You know, I had a woodwind trio and a string trio. And they said, you shouldn't have done that. I was like, uh, I'm absolutely going to do that. There's going to be more of that. And then, uh, yeah, then another album of stuff where um, old pieces that I had done for Roland synthesizers when I did a lot of demonstration stuff for them. Uh, a lot of those pieces kind of got a life of their own. So we finally released those greatest hits, you know, Request from the Vault. But the strangest thing, David, in this day and age, I got to tell you, is the fact that Interstellar Suite has taken off. It has a life of its own. Um, decades ago, somebody used it as an arrangement for drum corps for a marching band. Oh, wow. Uh, the drum corps competitions that happen in the U.S. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're big, big productions. They're, big, yeah. they're amazing. They're mm-hmm. amazing. They have three conductors on the football field because, you know, the players are all spaced so far apart. And now I think a couple of times a year there are ensembles using Interstellar Suite as the repertoire for competition. So I've heard, you know, a melody that I originally wrote, which was done with Minimogs and, and, you know, DX7s. It was intended for French horns and trombones. And now I'm hearing it on a field with, you know, 30 snare drums and 14 euphoniums. Like, it's an amazing sound. Again, something I could have never predicted, but but so exciting. And I, I get these I get these lovely letters from very passionate fans who really love the music. And 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 then I hear it arranged in a whole new way. I hope you get to have that. It's so amazing to hear your music done. You know, to have your music covered in a very very different way. I, I mean, there was there was a version of Walking in Space that was done by a gamelan ensemble or or a or a tuned percussion ensemble, like fourteen xylophones, all all doing lines that originally I had you know, done with a sequencer. It was amazing. It really, you know, so, yeah. It, very it's wild and there's like, time. You couldn't get in a time machine, go back to that night where you had your, your the premiere of your album when, when you said it was very anticlimactic because it was in that, that roadside <laughs> kind of <laughs> tavern and show up and say, don't worry, it's all going to work out and people will love this for for years and decades beyond this thing so chin up you'll do okay (laughs) (laughs) bless your heart actually you know what i'd go back earlier and i would thank my piano teacher the one that said go ahead just just go out there um because i really hated her for many years (laughs) and it wasn't until it was you know it was decades later my mom told me actually she didn't hate you she thought you were amazing that's why we she made us you know stop the piano lessons so i was like wow 
you know, it, it, it's it's there's so many people that go into programs, and they they and there's so many people that are talented and learn these things. And what's that that nth thing that defines someone like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, or yourself from lots of other people who are technically able to do this stuff? Because there's lots of people that can do music in various ways, shapes, and forms. But something is that there's a distinctive extra element that obviously people who make this their living and have this this signature sound um i get to do lectures now and people always ask me you know what is the formula like how do i get to do what you do and and all that stuff and uh one of the things i want to impart is that for me my philosophy is um it's it's there there's a formula and it's it's 33 33 and 34 and 33% of the job, that's your musical abilities. So all of your skills and all of your training, no matter, no matter whether you're an academic composer, no matter whether you started on a guitar, it doesn't matter. Whatever those skills are, make them the best you can be. Then the other 33% is your ability to work with people. You can have the greatest music idea in the world, but if you can't convince people to put it in the film or if you have a tough time um, you know, communicating those ideas, you're going to have to work on your communication skills because that is an equal part of of making the music um and then the other 34 percent, sadly it's luck it's pure luck it's being at the right place at the right time you know i mean what if what if williams didn't meet uh was it steven spielberg first yes it was what if spielberg and williams had never met i i shudder to think the alternate universe where that didn't happen um you know, because there's an, and there's an example of someone with a lot of talent, uh, in, in, you know, as, as in as in the composer John Williams, and then as someone else with talent, the filmmaker Steven Spielberg, recognizing um, the potential there, and uh, and many times, I mean, you know, there's the famous story where John Williams felt he wasn't qualified to write Schindler's List. Do you remember that one? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so yeah, here's to all this musical stuff, and here's to this technology, and here's to us being able to realize. You know, our musical, you know, thoughts going on in our head much better than we've ever been able to do before. But here's to the people, here's to our families, here's to our directors and producers and clients and money people that make all these things a reality. We, we have to remember they both work together. This is a business. It's, you know, the music business. You, you need the two together. And I think that's, that's the best collaborations when, when that is all done right. I think that's where the real big stuff happens. for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. 
You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>